All right, all right, all right. Good morning, everybody, again. Go ahead and start turning to Colossians in your Bible. Obviously, Joe and Kathy are gone this week, so Joe will be back next week. They went visiting grandparents and parents and all that stuff, so you're stuck with me this morning. I forgot, I was going to say it during the announcements, and I forgot. I know many of you don't ever get like further forward than the first back half of the sanctuary, but just to remind everybody that first class seating is up front, okay? First class seating with lots of leg room. If you need a little more room because of social distancing or whatever, yeah, see Rob, he's got it. He's like lean back. We don't have recliners, but we do have first class seating up front. So, and there's plenty of space. So anybody back there in economy, if you want to sit up front in first class, you got to move forward. I've said that before and people go, you have more spacing up front? It's like, yeah, you actually have to get past the back half of the sanctuary in order to discover that. But, uh, so there is first class seating up front. All right, Colossians. Uh, in Colossians. It's Palm Sunday, right? Triumphal Entry Sunday, however you want to say it. And we don't generally make a big deal out of it here at, at Del Rio Bible Church. Uh, we try to make a big deal out of Christ every week, not just certain weeks uh, of the year. Uh, but it's always intrigued me how on Sunday, the first day of the week, the masses hailed Jesus as king as he entered Jerusalem. Friday, that week, five days later, they're screaming for his crucifixion. Wow. How did that happen? That has always intrigued me. And you know, we're going to be in Colossians this morning, and Paul is going to tell us this morning, he's going to warn us about exactly that happening, going from hailing him as king to screaming for his crucifixion. And this is not a Palm Sunday message, but it's interesting how the Holy Spirit has me giving this message. This just happens to be where we are in Colossians on Palm Sunday. And there's an intersection there. Before we get too far into it, and I forget to pray, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this glorious day. Lord, I thank you uh, as, as Jana prayed for your creation, Lord. And when I think that uh, the beauty that we are surrounded with, as far as creation goes, is, is fallen. Uh, Lord, it's marred by sin, by the sin of Adam and Eve, by my sin, by everybody's sin. Lord, in there, although we're surrounded by beauty, there is so much awful stuff going on in the world. And Lord, I just can't wait to see the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, how nice it's going to be when there is no more weeping, when there's no more suffering, when there's no more tears. Lord, and I just pray that you help us as your church to speak your truth and stand in your light until that day comes. May we look forward to it, may we expect it, but may it not make us lazy, or worried, but may it make us work for you and reflect your light. Help us as we look at your word today to have right thoughts to get correct thinking and to not be swayed by the world lord i thank you for each person here and i know each one of us has things in our lives that we wish were not there and i pray that you give us eyes to see those and that through the power of your holy spirit you help us overcome you help us live through whatever we're going through with your peace and your grace. And Lord, may as we, as we live in this fallen world, I pray that the way we live would draw others towards you as we reflect your light. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Colossians. I've been going through the book of Colossians. This is the fifth uh, message in the book of Colossians that I've given. And hallelujah, we're finally going to get into chapter two this morning. Okay, so it's only taken me four and a half messages to get through chapter one. I promise the rest of the book will go a little bit more quickly. Uh, but I don't, uh, as you know, I don't preach very often. So if you need a, a refresher, you can go back and listen to the last message, which I think was in November, the dates on the top of your, uh, your sermon insert there. But just a quick recap to remind us, since we're not in Colossians that often, that Paul is the author. He's writing from prison, uh, most likely in Rome. Uh, it's written, a letter written to encourage the Col Colossians in their faith and their growth as Christians. 
it's, it's written to a church that Paul never personally visited, okay? It's not a church that he founded, uh, but it's a church that, uh, that he's heard about and that uh, uh, some friends of his founded. Uh, and in the letter, one of the things I love about it is the Christology. Christ, Christology, Christology, however you want to say it, uh, the study of the person and work of Jesus. Paul continually in this letter keeps hitting the truths of who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. And we're going to see it again this morning. We've seen it throughout chapter 1. We're going to see it as we get into chapter 2, that he keeps hitting these things. He wants to keep these truths before us, right in front of us. And his whole point is, if you keep the emphasis here, then everything else you can deal with. Okay, so keep the emphasis where it's supposed to be, and Paul does a great job doing that. We're going to start, I'm going to start reading Colossians 1. Last time we went through 24 through 27, but I want to read and start in 124 just to, uh, to make sure we have the context there. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's what we looked at last time. We looked at the suffering. If you have any questions on that, go listen to, to November's message. Okay, and then he goes on and says, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may represent every man, or present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you all alive, all to, or alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So again, last time we looked at the suffering, and Paul says, I'm suffering, we looked at the fact that there's suffering in the world, uh, because there's sin in the world. It's part of our ministry to Christ, the suffering. It helps build our spiritual muscles, persevering through suffering. It brings hope, and we can endure it because Christ is in us. He says that in verse 27, the mystery that was even revealed to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, our hope of glory. We can endure the suffering. We can get through the suffering. We can thrive in the suffering because Christ is in us. And then Paul picks up from there and he says, hey, if, if you understand that truth, Christ is in you, that mystery. How can, you can't keep it to yourself. So then in 28, and he says, and we proclaim him. If he's in you and you understand that mystery that he's in you, he's your hope of glory, we proclaim him. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Many of your translations say everyone, and that's the sense here. It's not just men that he's talking about. It's not sexist. It's everybody. If you're looking in the NIV, you only see everyone twice there because they made it 
simpler for English. But in the Greek, it's there three times. Everyone, everyone, everyone. It's almost like Paul is trying to tell us that we should be proclaiming Christ to everyone. Like we shouldn't choose who we're going to tell about him and who we're not going to tell about him. Well, I'm intimidated by those folks. I'm not going to go tell them. I don't like those folks. I'm not going to tell them. Paul says everyone, everyone, three times. Reminds me of Paul before Agrippa in Acts when he says, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. In other words, he wants everybody who hears him to come to the knowledge of Christ, to be in Christ, to have that hope of glory inside of them. Two words he uses here, admonish and teach. Admonish, that's a tough one. That is not one we like. Okay? Generally, we don't like admonishing people, especially fellow Christians. And I know for a fact most of us don't like to be admonished. We don't take that very well. So I continually prayer, Lord, help me be a good admonisher in love and gentleness and respect. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. And help me be graceful when I'm being admonished. I don't always do so good at it. But it is my prayer. He admonishes every man. That admonishing is a warning. And it could be in this sense, it could be a warning to non-believers to come to Christ. It could be a warning to believers who have gone astray. I think Paul means it as both. Yes, because he says every man. Those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. Admonish them. The other word he uses is teach them. Teach them. That's what we're doing this morning. We're teaching. That's what's going on back in the greenhouse is teaching. That's what goes on in your families is you teach. And hopefully you're teaching about Christ and teaching about the word of Christ. I know that's what's happening here this morning. I hope that's happening in your families as well. It's also what happens to unbelievers when they have questions. You teach them. I love it when unbelievers have questions. The ones that are hard to talk to are the ones that don't want to have anything to do with you and just walk away. Man, when they have questions, you can engage them, right? If they have questions, that's awesome. Somebody in your workplace has questions. Woohoo! And don't feel bad if you don't know the answers to the questions. Tell them, I don't know. But let's look at this together and let's see if we can figure it out and find out. That's a great way to build a relationship, great, people to t- great way to tell people about Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man with all and with every man. Ah, whoop, mouth's not working. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. And we're going to find out where that wisdom comes from here in a little bit. He's already told us once in the book, and we're going to get into it more. That we may present every man complete in Christ. What is the purpose? Is to, compl- to present everybody complete in pr- Christ. Mature and in Christ. That complete uh, money, your translation may say mature, okay, mature. Nobody should ever die a baby Christian unless it's a deathbed conversion, like the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross died as a baby Christian, was saved, and was complete in that regard in Christ, but had no time to mature. The rest of us Christians, we should be maturing. We should be coming, becoming more Christ-like all the time, and that's Paul's goal that we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching, so that everybody, those who don't know him yet and those who do, are presented complete in Christ. And then he goes into some words. He says, and for this purpose, I labor, striving, according to the power which mightily works in me. Labor and striving. Those are words that, man, it's effort. It's not easy. I don't sit back with my feet up and it's just easy. It's effort. He labors. He strives. In the, in the 2-1, he struggles. He says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have on your behalf. I labor, I strive, I struggle. I work at this. This is work. It's purposeful work. 29 gives us a great um, truth that we, especially we who have grown up in America, or have bought into the American culture, have a hard time with. And the truth is, it's not our power that does it. He labors, he struggles, he strives. 
but not in his own power. He says, according to his power, according to God's power, according to Jesus' power, which mightily works within him. We work, but we work with God's power, not our own. Man, we in America are fiercely independent. I can do it on myself. The results depend on me. No. The results depend on God, people. Admonish, teach every man. And the results depend on God. He's the power supply, not your own. You'll come to the end of your own power supply very quickly. You've got to tap into His. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. This is how we know He never visited this church. And this is a cyclical letter we saw from the beginning that it was supposed to go to Colossae and then on to Laodicea. Okay. He says he struggles, he labors, he strives. Where's Paul again? He's in prison. Wait a minute, Paul. You're laboring, striving, and struggling while you're chained to a Roman guard? I don't think you're moving around all that much at all. Guess what? Paul's taken out of the move around and go minister to people business but he still struggle strives labors and how does he do that he does that in prayer and he does that by writing letters and i just want to encourage all of us i mean we just all went through a season where a lot of you a lot of us decided or were forced to stay home that doesn't mean you're out of christian ministry some people are infirm. They can't get out. They're sick. They're bedridden. That doesn't mean they're out of Christian ministry. Pray for people. Man, that's when you become the prayer warrior of justice. Okay? That's when you become the ultimate prayer warrior when you can't do a whole lot else other than pray. And then write notes. Write notes to people. It can be text. It can be handwritten notes. Get notes of encouragement out to people. So just because you're at home, whether it's due to sickness, injury, whatever it is, and you can't get out doesn't mean you're out of Christian ministry. Paul's in prison, and he's talking about how much he labors and strives and struggles for these people. Why does he do that? He says in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ. Paul goes on here and gives us some characteristics of a healthy church, of a healthy body. And it's those whose hearts are encouraged. We're encouraged. We should be encouraging to one another here at Del Rio Bible Church. We should be lifting each other up. And it's just interesting in Greek, he gives us the manner or the reason why of that, that encouragement. And, and in my translation, it says, having been knit together in love having been knit together in love is the way that we are encouraged because we are knit together in love as a body that should encourage us no matter what's going on and i know life is hard at times but if you have a body that you're knit together in love and that word for knit i mean it's tight it's not we're standing next to each other and somebody could get in between us another way to translate that would be welded we are together. Very, very difficult to, to separate. Knit together in love. And that's encouraged. And that encourages our hearts. That's the mark of a healthy body, of a healthy church. And what that helps us do is realize the wealth. And we're not talking material wealth. We're talking spiritual wonderfulness here. Okay, the wealth that comes from the full assurance, the full understanding of this mystery of God, and that is Christ. The full understanding of Christ. And it's why Paul spends so much time telling us who Christ is and what he did in this letter. Keeping it before us. So our hearts are knit together in love. That encourages us. And it helps us come to the, full, the absolute assurance that we have in him. And the full knowledge of him. And when he says it's a mystery, we looked at that a little bit last time, but it's not a mystery that Christ, the Messiah, that there was a Messiah coming. The whole Old Testament was, 
was full of the Messiah. The mystery was that when the Messiah came, he wasn't immediately instituting the kingdom, that he was going to have to die on a cross, and that he was going to bring everybody to him. He was going to make a way for everybody to be right with God, not just the Jews. That's the mystery. It's alluded to in the Old Testament, but it's not just outright said in the Old Testament. So the mystery of Christ is Christ himself. And it says, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where's wisdom and knowledge? It's in Christ. It's in Christ. And it's hidden there. It doesn't mean you can't find it. Interesting word and an interesting meaning here for hidden. There's two sides of it. First, Christ is sufficient and he's complete. Okay? He is sufficient for us. He's complete. All wisdom and knowledge are found in him. In other words, and, 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 and we know of him through his word, right? The Bible isn't antiquated. It's not out of date. It's not old fashioned. There isn't any superior knowledge somewhere else. It's all right here in Christ. There isn't a superior knowledge that somebody else has or that we have more than the Colossians did. The Bible is accurate and applicable today as it was when it was written. Paul wants us to understand that. We need, in this day and age, to understand that. He wanted the Colossians to understand that almost 2,000 years ago. We need to understand it today. The second part of this is notice that you can't have the full knowledge unless you belong to Christ. Because where is it? It's hidden in Christ. Once you're His, you have access to the full knowledge. Hidden not as in you can't find it, but like a treasure chest. This is where it's kept. In Christ is where all the knowledge and wisdom are kept. Those who don't know Jesus don't have access to it. Because it's in Christ. And it's one of the things that makes evangelizing, and if you don't like that word, uh, saying your testimony, talking to unbelievers, it's one of the things that makes, can make it so frustrating. Because they don't get it. It may seem obvious to you. It may seem obvious to me. But they don't get it because they're not in Christ. They're not in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. And apart from Him, you don't have access. You don't have access. But keep at it, because the Holy Spirit can draw those people. The Holy Spirit will draw those people. And once they come to a saving faith in Christ, they start, their eyes start to be opened to all the wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are out there. And then in verse 4, he says, I say this. He's going to tell us, why is he telling us this? I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. As we get to chapter, or verse 8, we're going to get into this more. Nobody may delude you. May, nobody may deceive you with persuasive arguments. Because I'm here to tell you people, our flesh, our sin nature, is very susceptible to deceptive, persuasive arguments. If we want to do something that we know we ought not to do, man, we can come up with just about any reason to do it. I can rationalize, I can justify just about anything if I want to do this. And he's telling us, no, all wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. That's where all wisdom and knowledge are. If you stay there, if you stay in Christ, if you stay in the Word, you won't be deceived by persuasive-sounding arguments that lead my flesh over here. You won't be deceived. And man, that is so important in today's culture. We have a culture that is running as fast as it can away from wisdom and knowledge. And it's deceiving a lot of people, even Christians. Okay? We're going to get into some admonishing this morning. I want you to know that the admonishing is not just for you, it's for me as well. Okay? I'm not, I don't want to be admonishing at you. I don't want to be admonishing us as a body. Okay? It, it's for both of us. So being in Christ, standing on Him is where we need to be so we're not deceived 
by the arguments of the world. So we're not deceived by the arguments of the world. And we're going to get into some examples here in a little bit, but I just, one of the ones in the past year that has driven me crazy, and it's not just the past year, but it's been more pronounced in the past year, year and a half, is the bludgeon that people will use to get you to believe a lie. And the bludgeon in our culture right now is follow the science. Follow the science. We'll talk about it in a little bit. That, they don't really mean follow science, as in the scientific method where I can observe something, I can set up an, I can set up an experiment, and I can do this. What they mean is follow our interpretation and follow the way we want to believe about things we observe. Follow the science. Use as a bludgeon to get us going the wrong direction. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of those things. Before we get there, because I'm going to wait until we get to verse 8. He says in verse 5, he picks up, he says, For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. Again, he's joined with them in prayer. He's there in the spirit. He's rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith. So he's commending the church at Colossae for their uh, discipline and their, their stability in their faith. But he's going to continue to tell them, hey, stay there, stay there. He says, and as therefore you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. How, ha how did we receive Christ? How, how did the Colossians receive Christ? How did we receive Christ? How do you come to him? By faith. We received him in faith. How else did we come to him? Hearing the word, repentance, all good. Uh, when, he was, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, he said that there will be a time when you won't worship on this hill or in Jerusalem, but those who come to me will come to me how? Spirit and in truth. We came to him spiritually. We came to him in truth. We came to him in repentance. We came to him in faith. And Paul's saying, as you came to him, so walk in him. Walk in spirit. Walk in truth. Walk in faith. Walk in repentance. As you came to him, so walk in him. We don't just come to him in faith, and then I'm going to live my life by sight. I'm going to live my, my life according to the persuasive arguments of the world. No, come to him. you came to him in faith. Continue in faith. You came to him in spirit and truth. Continue in spirit and truth. You came to him repenting of your bad deeds. Yes. Continue repenting yes. of things that ought not to be there. <laughs> As therefore you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And then he gives some, some, some characteristics of this walk. Having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, i.e. you were taught, you were admonished, just as you were instructed, do that, overflowing with gratitude. Having been firmly rooted, that is a perfect tense verb in Greek. And what that means, according to the commentators, because I haven't studied Greek, but what it means is it was a once and for all thing. You were rooted in him, it was one and done. But it's, it's, it's effective continually. Okay? So that was, hey, you're rooted in him. He was your foundation. Christ is your foundation. And then you're, you were rooted in him, but now you're being built up in him and you're establishing your faith. Those are present tense. Those are ongoing things. We're continually being built up in him. We're continuing continually exercising our faith muscles and getting more and more faith. The men's group on Thursday morning is going through Genesis, and it's fantastic to watch the faith of Abraham grow through the story. It's fantastic to watch the faith of Jacob grow through the story. It's fantastic to watch the faith of Joseph grow as they walk with God. That ought to be our story too, people. We come to Jesus, and then our faith grows. We're rooted in him once and effective forever. But we're continually being built up and establishing, being built up in him and establishing our faith. Having been firmly rooted, and he says, and overflowing with gratitude. Paul is full of thankfulness, gratitude throughout his letters. To me, Paul is telling us that gratitude 
is a mark of a mature believer. Now, it's not a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's not listed in Galatians 12 as a fruit of the Spirit. But Paul talks about it so much, I believe he's telling us that gratitude is the mark of maturity. We should be thankful. The more we learn about, how, about ourselves, the more we learn about God, the more we should be grateful for what he's done for us. The more we should be grateful for the things that he allows in our lives. Yes, the good and the bad. Gratitude is the mark of a mature believer. And then he comes back to the, the, the thought that he started in verse 4. In verse 8, he says, see to it. Again, we're walking in him, right? We are rooted, he says, as you came to him, we're walking in him. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He's talking about our Christian walk. And I want to get rid of one thing real quickly here. Some of your, uh, your translations may say the elementary spirits. Anybody looking at a translation that, that says elementary spirits? Tough word to translate, supposedly. So it could mean, it, and, it, and it does mean in many different places, it means, it means kind of the basics, like the ABCs, things that are lined up. ABCs. So that word means that. So that's what some translations say, hey, according to the basic, the elementary principles, the ABCs. But it also, in other places in literature, means spiritual forces. So it could be according to the spiritual forces. Okay? Regardless of how Paul meant it here, the thought is still the same. We need to be walking according to Christ as, a, as opposed to according to anything else. Amen. Okay? We need to be walking according to Christ. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men according to the elementary principles or the spiritual forces, the, the, the evil spiritual forces, the elemental forces of the world, rather than to Christ. Oh, as we walk this world, we've got to be in the truth, people. We have got to walk in the truth because our culture is walking in deception. As the church, Paul is calling them back then. It's not a new phenomenon it's not like we've got in, in, in 21st century America got the, the, the market on people trying to deceive us and living by lies. It's been going on for a long time. But we are really seeing it in a culture that was, even if you don't say Christian, was very Christianized, was, a, was affected by Christianity very much, very deeply. And we're, our culture is leaving that. And we, as Christ's body, have to stay in the truth and not be swayed by culture. What are some of the things that the culture is swaying us? What are some of the deceptions out there? Anybody? My truth. Man, I think that's probably the, the base of all the rest of them. Is, is, man, don't let anybody tell you that you can't be you. You've got to be who you are, and don't let anybody tell you that you're not who you want to be. Live your truth. Man, what a lie. You are who God created you to be. And nothing you do or culture does can change that. Embrace who you are in Christ, not some lie that you call your truth. I think that's kind of the base, maybe the, 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 the their, our foundation is Christ. Our culture's foundation is my truth versus your truth, relative truth. What else? What, what, are, what are some of the things that are the result of that? What are some things that you guys are seeing out there that just make you shake your head? I know there are a lot of you on Facebook and you just shake your head. You just go, really? Really, really? Confusion. confusion. What kind of confusion? Okay, identity confusion. Are you talking gender confusion? Okay. Yeah, big one. We just talked about follow the science. Follow the science. Well, wait a minute. You're, gonna, you're getting ready to tell me that a man can be a girl and a girl can be a boy. But yet you're telling me to follow the science? I'm pretty sure if we give that person a blood test, we're either going to see an XY chromosome or an XX chromosome. That's what the science says. But again, in this embrace your truth, the culture has bought this deception that you can be anybody you want to be. 
It's a lie. We can't follow the lie. What else? What's that? You only live once. Do whatever you want. YOLO. I'm like, I'm lost. So I'm not up on the hip words. I'm sorry. I'm an older guy, and I don't know about the YOLOs. Uh, yeah, you only live once. Do whatever you want. Yeah, you're right. You only live once. But guess what? Judgment is there. And it's there for each and every one of us. It is appointed to man once to die, and then comes judgment. All right. Judgment. How about sex? Uh-oh, I said it. Out loud. Our culture is confused on sex. Be it homosexuality, which is obvious, and most, most people, at least in, in a church like this, a fairly strict Bible, Orthodox Bible preaching church, will tell you that homosexuality is a sin. However, I know there's a whole lot of people in a church like this. And again, I'm, I'm going to step on toes. I'm stepping on my own too. That think premarital sex is okay. Or maybe they don't think it's okay, but they've justified it. Well, I can give you a reason why it's okay for me in this case. I can tell you my justification. But I'm going to marry her. I'm willing to marry her. It's okay. Not okay, people. That's the lie that the culture tells us. It's not okay. Cohabitating before marriage. It's not okay. It is the deception that the culture has got you going on. We need to be in Christ, the wisdom and knowledge of the truth in Christ. What else? We got evolution. How about kids today? I don't really have to obey my parents. This is back to that, my truth, your truth. That may be true for my parents, but I don't really need to obey my parents. We have got teenagers running amok because they don't need to obey their parents. And guess what? The culture tells them that's fine. You want to go get an abortion without telling your parents? That's fine. You want to do this without telling your parents? That's fine. Our medical community has started not telling the parents anything after the kids reach 16. It's only a matter once they become 14, maybe 12. You have to pay for it as parents, but no, we're not going to tell you unless we have their permission. They're lies. How about race? Man, we've heard a lot about that one in the last year, year and a half. The culture will tell you that there's different races, but there aren't people. There is one race, the human race. We are all made in the image of God, and we all descend from Adam and more recently from Noah. All of us. We have different cultural backgrounds. We have different uh, ethnic backgrounds. We have different colors of skin because we have different amounts of melatonin in our skin. Melanin, not melatonin. That's the thing that makes you sleep. <laughs> Follow the science! Um, melanin in our skin. But we're all descendants. And until, until we stop talking about race and trying to divide everybody by race man it's killing us how many of you feel that america is closer together today and more united today than we were two years ago anybody and yes i mean race ethnicity has been used by so many people through history to do so many awful awful things even in the church. Amen, brother. Even in the church. And that's what happens. That's why Paul is admonishing them. That's why I'm admonishing us. We have to stay in Christ. Amen. Because a church that would torture somebody so that they would proclaim Christ in the Inquisitions is not a church that is in Christ. A church that would justify owning slaves is not having all the wisdom and knowledge of Christ and his word. Because the word clearly says we're all made in the image of God. It clearly indicates we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. And like I said more recently, Noah. 
Why do we look different? Why do we have different ethnic and cultural backgrounds? Because we rebelled against him after, after the flood. Chris preached on it at the Tower of Babel. And God said, and dispersed us. Gave us different languages. But we're all one people. We're all one people. We have got to stand on the truth, folks, in his church. How do we do that? I want to take just a little bit of time talking about how do we deal with people that have bought into the lies, both inside the church and out of the church? What do we do? Well, Paul's already told us. In 128, he told us, we admonish and we teach. We admonish and we teach. We have to do that with love and gentleness and respect. 2 Peter 3.15 says what? Paraphrase. We're all supposed to be ready to give an answer for the hope within us in gentleness and reverence. Okay? 2 Timothy 2.24-26 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps may, God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In Timothy, Paul tells us our overall goal when we admonish, when we teach somebody, is not to push them away. It's to bring them in, to draw them closer, to restore them. Either restore them to a right relationship with God through their coming to to knowledge of Christ and having that salvation. And then even if they're saved, restore them to a right relationship with Christ. That's our goal. Our goal is not to push people away. Our goal is to draw people in, but we can't accept the lies. Because all the, the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. We cannot accept the lies. So what does that look like? Well, for unbelievers... It means we give them the truth of the gospel. We don't accept the lie, but we accept them. And we can fellowship with them. You can fellowship with unbelievers that are living ungodly lives. Because guess what? Unbelievers aren't going to live any other way. Okay? How about believers? Believers, we, are, we should, again, confront their sin biblically in love, trying to restore them. And getting them to repent. But if they don't repent, the hard truth is, if they say, my sin is fine and I'm going to live in it, if they acknowledge Christ, we're not supposed to fellowship with them. It seems counterintuitive. Wait a minute, I can hang out with the unbelievers that are sinners, but I can't hang out with the believers that are wallowing in their sin? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. I'm going to read the passage here in a second. But if you think about it, kind of what Jesus did too, isn't it? And he caught grief from it because he hung out with the sinners, but he didn't accept their sin. He was showing them a better way. He was giving them truth and telling them to come out of their sin. That's what Jesus did. That's what we ought to do. Show them Jesus. The Pharisees, those who said, I don't have sin, they were wallowing in it. But they said, I don't have sin. What I'm doing is fine. Jesus didn't have anything to do with. He had some really hard words for them. We've got to live in truth, people. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 is the key passage for this. You can read the, the context. I don't have time to go back to it, but the, well, you can read the context. Context is there's sin going on in the 1 Corinthian church, and they are not dealing with it right. Paul gives them instructions. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a rival or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have you to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge, but do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from, you, from among yourselves. So again, we confront sin when we see it. We stay in the truth. Our goal is to restore. 
If we have a brother or sister in Christ that is going to stay in their sin and say, it's not sin, I'm going to keep living, we, can't, we don't associate with them. Not because we, we just want to get rid of them. We want them to repent and come back in. And when they repent, we, we man, open our arms wide and bring them in and say, welcome back, brother and sister. Welcome back. Because Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. In other words, stay in Christ. Live for the truth in Christ. And then he's going to tell us why and he's going to get back into this Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I love the Bible. I mean, we could just, man, we could just park in Colossians and just go through all kinds of different things. Man, we'd be here for years and we would go to almost every other part of the Bible. I'm not going to do that. We're just going to look at these facts and kind of highlight them as we go through uh, verses 9 through 15. For in him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's God. Paul talked to us about that in chapter 1, and he's telling us again, why do you want to walk in Christ? Why do you want to stay rooted in Christ? Because he's God. That's why. And in him, you have been made to complete. No, not only is he God, but he made you complete. You are in him and you are complete. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 that he's given us everything we need to live godly lives. In him, you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. He is the king of kings. He is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made with hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Man, now we could go talk about circumcision, but we're not going to. What he's saying is you, your sin nature in Christ, he's given you the ability, he has removed your sin nature from your spiritual nature, and he has given us the ability not to sin. Unfortunately, none of us, the Bible teaches, none of us avail ourselves of that opportunity completely. We all still mess up. But he has given us the ability. I'll send you to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's familiar to many of you. You can go look at that on your own. When we sin, it's because we don't avail ourselves of God's power. We don't avail ourselves of the opportunity God has given us not to sin. Thank you, Jesus, that he, can, he still forgives us. That he paid for everything on the cross. But that's the circumcision he's talking about here. Taking our flesh, our sin nature, away from our spiritual body. Having been buried with him in baptism. Whoop! We could go talk about baptism. Not going to do it. Okay? In which you were also raised with him. So the picture of us being buried with him in baptism and coming out of the water and being raised with him in Christ. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism isn't some magical pill. But it is commanded. You're not saved by baptism. But it is commanded. I love how one, uh, one, one commentator put it. He said, Baptism then is not the magic rite, but an act of obedience in which we confess our faith and symbolize the essence of our sp spiritual experience. Faith is the instrumental cause that... that ah, faith is the instrumental cause of that experience. And apart from real faith, baptism is an empty, meaningless ceremony. It's not baptism that saves, but baptism is commanded. Okay? 13, and when you were dead in your transgressions, we were all dead. We were all awful, wallowing in our sin and thinking it was okay. He said, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, i.e. in your sin, fully sin, carnal nature, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He forgave them all. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Any list of sins that we have done have been nailed to the cross. Okay? Culturally, they would put what you were, what, when they crucified you, they'd put what you, why you were being crucified on the cross. What did they put on Jesus' cross? King of the Jews. Why did they put that there? Why did Pilate put King of the Jews? What happened on Palm Sunday? The people came in and said, he's the king. You don't think Pilate knew about that? I don't know for sure, because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. I think Pilate put king of the Jews there as he was mocking the, Israel, the, the, the Jewish people. Last week you hailed this guy as king, now you want me to crucify him. 
I'm going to put king of the Jews. And when the religious leader said, don't put king of the Jews, but say he claimed to put, be king of the Jews, he said, I put what I put. That was the charge against Jesus. The charges against us were nailed to the cross with Jesus. He paid for it. He paid for our transgressions. Live in his truth. And then it says, and when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What was the public display? He defeated. Satan thought he had a victory. Whoop! Son of God on the cross. Satan thought he had a victory. What was the public display? God made, Jesus made a public display of him. God made a public display of him. The resurrection. He was resurrected and publicly walked among them. People, I'm here to tell you that you, me, we are God's public display over the authorities and rulers, over the spiritual forces. Us living the Christian life, which is why we've got to live in the truth. Paul tells us, live in the truth. Let's not be those who say, Jesus, you're my king. Thank you for saving me. And then come over here and live any way we want. Which is effectively saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Live in the truth. Together. That's what Paul's telling us. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, it challenges us. It pokes us. It molds us. It stretches us. And as Romans 12 says, Lord, I pray that it transforms our thinking. It transforms our minds into the mind of Christ. That through the study of your word, through the building up of one another, through being united in love, we can avail ourselves of all the wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. Lord, I pray that we walk in the manner that we came to you knowing that you are God, that you are the King of kings, walking in our faith, walking in spirit, walking in truth. Help us not be puffed up with spiritual pride, Lord. Help us speak the truth in love and gentleness with the, with the desire to bring all men to you to mature all those who you've given us. Lord, I pray that we would be lights wherever you've put us. Help us to live for you no matter what. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.